Thank you, Pastor Phyllis. Thank you, Pastor Virginia. Before we consider, that scripture reading pretty much explains itself. I think we're good here. <laughs> Nothing to dig into there. Before we consider today's scripture reading and today's message, I want to extend words of gratitude uh, to our guest musicians who are blessing us with their gifts. Thank you so much for being here as well to the Morning Song Choir as well. I want to say special words of appreciation uh, to all of our volunteers who are spending this afternoon preparing for Vacation Bible School. We got a big week of Vacation Bible School coming up next week. We'll talk a little bit about more that a little bit more about that when it comes later in the service. But very special time here. A bunch of people chipping in in a lot of different ways. I want to extend my words of gratitude and thanksgiving. A special word of gratitude to Pastor Mike, uh, who filled in for me last week over the 4th of July holiday. I hope you all had a wonderful 4th of July holiday, which is something I'm in the habit of saying, and I'm usually in the habit of just expecting a pretty plain response, but it didn't happen to me this week because I was having a cup of coffee with a ministry colleague of mine, and we, were, we just sat down and we were making small talk, and I said, hey, how did you celebrate the 4th of July holiday? Forgetting that he's from England. <laughs> and he went, oh, you mean treason day. <laughs> so I hope you celebrated 4th of July or mourned treason day in whatever way is appropriate for your cultural context. If you are a longtime member of the church here, or someone who's heard me speak over the course of years, you'll come to know that I am never here over the week of the 4th of July holiday. Uh, not because of the 4th of July, it's because it abuts up against a very important holiday that just exists for my family. In order to understand that holiday, you may need to know that uh, I had experienced in, over the course of multiple years in my 20s, a very serious bout with cancer. At the age of 25, I thought I had allergies. Went to just a, a drop-in doctor's clinic thinking all I needed was some allergy medicine and weeks and months of testing later. On the last day of June 2009, I was finally diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. The next day, I lost my health insurance, uh, so I was an uninsured stage 4 cancer patient. Two weeks later, the job I was working for went out of business. Uninsured, unemployed, stage 4 cancer patient. Uh, just a few weeks later was my wedding day, but by that time, my wife and I had $0.00 in our account. So unemployed, uninsured, stage 4 cancer patient about a dollar to his name on his wedding day. So it was a tough time. Went through uh, six months of very intensive chemotherapy treatment. Uh, was feeling a lot better, doing a lot better. A couple of years later, 24 months later, our oldest son was born, which was a miracle. We didn't believe that was going to be possible for us. Six weeks later, a routine scan found that the cancer had returned. The kind of cancer that I had, the treatment that I'd already gone through, and the fact that it had come back meant that the chances of me living five more years were not very good. Uh, at that point, what was required was called a, a high-dose chemotherapy treatment over the course of multiple months and then a bone marrow transplant. And so uh, every year, my family gathers together and celebrates the fact that on July 3rd, um, which is the anniversary of my bone marrow transplant. We celebrate the, the treatment and the ultimate healing, and we get together and as a family on Lake Travis where my parents live, and we celebrate. And so July 3rd is our family day of celebration of a new birthday, and uh, it's a special holiday for us. And so you can do whatever you want to on July 3rd. I ain't going to be there because <laughs> we're out celebrating, and we celebrate as a family because we suffered as a family, right? I mean, it was my body. It was, it was my cancer. It was my chemotherapy, it was my surgeries, it was my, you know, side effects of all the medicines and the treatment, my weakness, my lifelong changes that were uh, done in my body because of it, but we suffered as a family. I mean, 
parents suffered. And the way that only a parent can suffer is they fear for the life of their child, even their grown child, it doesn't matter. They suffered. Of course, my wife suffered. She suffered in caring and suffered in the way that a person who's trying to, to balance what it is to become a mother and possibly a widow in the same year can suffer. We suffered together. We celebrate together because our suffering is never just ours alone. It impacts so many people around us. I celebrate that day not only for the fact that it was a moment where a life-threatening illness was ultimately cured, I'm considered cured, but it was because also a marker in my own life of faith and a transition that happened in me. And it went from, it was a moment in time where for a number of years I had believed that God is present and God is with us and that in God all will be well. In fact, I had even trusted that God is present and God is with us and that in God and through God all will be well. I had believed it and I had trusted it, but as a byproduct of that experience, having gone through it, I have come to know in my bones, as well as I know my own name, that God is present and God is with us. And in God and through God, all will be well. And so I share the story today of making sure that you understand that life experience that I've been through. Uh, because it's important that you understand when I talk about today's subject that it's not academic for me. It's not a hypothetical for me. I've got literal skin in the game multiple times over with the concept of suffering. In fact, I share the cancer story most often in the context of sermons because it's the chance that I can share what it is to experience suffering that doesn't require the violation of anybody else's privacy. But please believe that's not the only experience of, of deep and profound suffering that I've experienced. We're in a sermon series right now called I Have My Doubts, and I've been so thankful to hear back from you what it, uh, how much you've appreciated uh, the fact that we're bringing up this topic in a sermon series. I've been so appreciative, and not one of you had said, thank you so much for your sermon on doubts. You have fixed all my doubts. Not one of you has said that. Anybody want to now or no? Okay. Now, one of you has said that. What a number of you have said in passing, on the steps out front, in emails, is just thank you for acknowledging and giving space to the reality of doubt. Because our life of faith does involve doubt. That's a part of it. It's not a shameful part of it. It's not a bad part of it. It's a healthy part of an active and living faith. So we've been talking about what it is to have doubts in the course of our faith. Over the first week, we talked about how doubts are a healthy part of our life of faith and what it is to even doubt in the possibility or existence of God. The next week, we talked about, well, what do we do with the facts that some portions of Scripture don't seem to align themselves with the character of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ? What do we do then? The next sermon, we talked about, well, what do we do with the fact that Jesus saves those who have faith in him and those who follow him? But what about people who've never heard the story of Jesus? Or what about the people who've only heard the story of Jesus in the context of people who were doing spiritual abuse to others? What about those people? Are they saved? Are they reconciled? Are they with God? Last week, Pastor Mike talked about what is it to have unanswered prayers? What is it to pray for something in such a heartfelt way and, and it's seemingly so right? and so good, and so in line with who God is, and what God wants, and yet it doesn't come to fruition. What do we do with that? 
If you didn't have a chance to engage with any of those messages, I want to invite you to return back to the MyFUMC app on your phone. You can watch any of the services there. Of course, you can always catch up with the messages on podcasts. A huge number of people engage with our ministry over the course of the week in that way. In fact, I'm surprised how many of you make it a point to tell me, you know, I always listen to the podcast of your sermons while I'm walking the dog or while I'm doing the dishes. Or one family said, hey, we were on a road trip. We worshiped eight Sundays in a row on just one trip. (laughs) And the idea that I'm in your ear that way is very weird to me. (laughs) So if you're listening now, I'm weirded out. (laughs) Let me just share that. But I want you to have a chance to go back and catch up on any of those messages because these are important. And they're, what if they're a part of what it is to earnestly experience a real life of faith. You're going to have these questions. You may even have these doubts more than anything. I need you to know those doubts are a part of your faithfulness. You're certainly not alone. And we do have meaningful answers. These choices of how to address these different doubts came from a large survey. came from the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, a very large United Methodist Church in the Kansas City area. And they surveyed thousands of members of their congregation. And these were the doubts that they lifted up. Things like the reality of God, things like the reliability of Scripture, what it is to receive salvation in Christ Jesus, unanswered prayer, etc., etc. The number one source of doubt, they said, was suffering and pain and hurt and evil in this world, particularly when it afflicts people who are so obviously innocent and undeserving. Of such a faith. That was the number one thing. That was the number one thing. And there's not only the reality of suffering, I mean, what it is to be sick or what it is to love someone who's sick or someone who's suffered abuse or who's suffered violence or an accident or who's had some terrible fate befall them. It's, it's one thing to experience the reality of that suffering, but then there's also the question and the problem of the suffering. God, if you're so good, if you're so present, and you're so powerful, if you're so at work, you're so mighty and so perfect, God, why early onset Alzheimer's? God, why cancer in children? God, why genocide? God, why phobias and biases that rip humanity away from people? God, why natural disasters? God, if you're so good and you're so present and you're so powerful, why God? Not just the reality, but the problem of suffering. And then something really insidious begins to sneak into my heart and maybe yours as well. Well, if I was God, if I was God, then no mental illness, no violence, no hatred, no greed. If I was God. The problem of suffering, as reported by faithful United Methodists, even though they're from Kansas, so who knows, is that these are one of the most pressing and difficult issues that come to us in our life of faith. You know, it may be surprising to you if your primary engagement with Scripture is in the context of worship services or the places where we see Scripture in our devotionals or things like that, but if you haven't actually done a diligent, thorough reading of the Scripture, you may be surprised to know how much of the sacred Scriptures are composed of people who are angry at God. 
Did you realize that? The Holy Scriptures, the Bible, is full of witnesses from people who are angry with God, who are frustrated by God, who feel betrayed by God, who are mad at God. The psalmists do it over and over again, complaining, upset, frustrated, mad, angry at God. In Jeremiah and in Lamentation, book after book is composed of people who are grieving God's inaction, God's failure to work and be present. And this isn't just limited to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus has a friend, a man that he's come to know and care for, as well as his siblings, Lazarus. And he's gotten word that Lazarus is deathly ill, and Jesus does not show up in time. His sister Martha runs up to greet him, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, he would not be dead. How many of us have wanted to say something like that? Lord, if you had been here, my child would not have this addiction. Lord, if you would been here, this relationship would not have fallen apart. Lord, if you had been here, this trauma, this abuse, this victimization, this violence would not have happened. Lord, if you had been here, he would have lived. Scripture is full of people angry at God, frustrated with God, mad at God. But we can't talk about what it is to experience suffering and anger at God without mentioning the book of Job. So Job is a portion of the Bible, a genre called wisdom literature. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about multiple different portions of the Bible that represent wisdom literature. I hope that you think of wisdom literature as a chance to speak to a mentor, to hear from someone who's walked this path before you and has words of wisdom to share with you. That's what we get from the portions of the Bible that we call wisdom literature, and, and Job falls into that category. Job is much too long to neatly cover in just one sermon. It's 42 chapters long, but to summarize the story, it's basically this. Job lives in a time that is before religion as we know it, before Christianity, even before Judaism. He's before David, he's before Jerusalem, he's before Abram, he's before Moses, he's before the captivity in Egypt, he's before all of that. Yet Job has intuited that this creation is ordered by a good and present God. Job is wealthy, he's prosperous, he has land, he has livestock, he has family, and in the midst of all of this, he is pious, constantly offering sacrifices, constantly doing whatever he can to express his appreciation and his love for God, and it's all taken away. In a test, Job loses everything. His children are killed both by natural disasters and by the evil that lies in the hearts of other people. He loses all of his wealth, his own body, and his own health is destroyed. He's weeping, he's mourning, he's distraught. Job's friends show up and they try to help him. They try to say things that they think will guide him in the right path of faithfulness. They're trying to say things that they mean to be helpful but ultimately aren't. A number of years ago, we did a sermon series called Half-Truths. You can still find it online if you'd like to see it. And it, it covers the things that we say to people when we're hoping and trying to make them feel better, but underneath them are some theological mistakes. Things like, it's all part of God's plan. Well, that implies that God did this to you. That's not quite right. We'll say things like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, which I'm pretty sure Job and any of us would say, I tapped out a long time ago. 
I'm well beyond being able to handle this. Again, that purports that God is the source and the giver of the suffering. That's not exactly right. Those are the things that we say to each other in our modern parlance. This is a much older time, different theological understanding of, of who God is and how life works. And what Job's friends are basically saying is this. Look, we all understand that whatever you're experiencing here on life is the byproduct of your actions. And because you've experienced all of this suffering, you obviously sinned and did something wrong. Why else is it that your farm would have been destroyed? Why else is it that your children would have been killed? Why else is it that your body would be in such ill health? Obviously, you did something wrong. You need to take ownership of that. That's what his friends are saying in an effort to be helpful to him. And Job is steadfast. I did not, he said. I know that I was faithful. I know that I did not do anything to deserve this. And Job is right. But where Job is wrong is he says, I've done nothing but deposit praise and worship towards God, and what I should be receiving is blessings and riches in return. I've sown such goodness, I should be reaping something better, and that hasn't happened. God must be broken. That's not how this is supposed to work. And then Job begins to allude to the fact that if I was in charge, it wouldn't be like this. And that's when God speaks back. For well over 30 chapters of the book of Job, it's the prelude to the story, and it's this conversation between Job and his friends. And then a tornado shows up, and God speaks from the tornado. God says to Job, beginning with, gird your loins, which if you're wearing a robe, girding your loins means gathering your robe up in a way that you're now able to run or fight. You know how we do that in conversations. Gird your loins, guys. This is going to be a big one basically God's way of saying, okay, Job, settle up. And when God begins to do is not answer the question, why suffering? God doesn't answer the question, why disease? God doesn't answer the question, here's why mental illness, here's why tragedy, here's why cancer. God doesn't answer that question. What God answers is instead pointed toward the deeper questions that Job asks. Are you even here? Are you even present? Do you even care? And could I do better? God says, Job, do you even understand? Do you even understand this creation? Did you set it into existence? Did you breathe it into form? Did you set the limits of everything that is? Have you seen the grandeur of creation, the monsters of the land and sea, the smallest little hairs on the head? Do you have the power? Do you think you could do it better? Do you think that no one's managing the store? Do you think this is broken? Do you think I don't know how to work? Do you think I don't know how to be good and present and active and saving at all times? Do you really think that, Job? And Job gives the best answer of anybody in the Bible. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. <laughs> Job does not get the answer to the question, why suffering? And the truth is, neither will you, and neither will I, ever. There are some things that do lie in the realm of mystery. Why the Trinity? Why the atonement through death on the cross? Why suffering? There are some things that will ultimately reside for us in mystery, and the truth is, that's good news. Because God, if God is truly greater and truly worthy of our worship, then there need to be things that we can't fully comprehend in our limited human form. But what Job does know is this. No matter what, God is there. God is present. God is at work, and God has not forsaken. 
we will never fully, to our satisfaction, know the answer to why suffering. It lies in mystery. But we do know this. God is about love. And God is about relationships. And every relationship requires freedom. You cannot force someone to love you. And because God's purposes for you and your family and for everyone who has ever existed is to live in loving relationship with God, God made you free. God made all of creation free. Free to love, free to serve, free to heal, free to provide, free to redeem, and free to hurt and free to abuse, and free uh, to make less than, free to go haywire, free to go wrong, free to grow sick. Because the ultimate purpose is for God is relationship and love, and because that can only happen through freedom, God made you and everyone you love ultimately free. But what God also did was promise that even though this freedom results in sin and death, sin and death do not have the last word. Jesus wasn't there, and Lazarus died. Martha ran up, looked Jesus in the face. If you were here, he would still be alive. And Jesus says to her, your brother will live. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am here, he says. Lazarus suffers and dies. He does. He's resurrected from the tomb that day. But you know what? He dies again. But in Jesus Christ, he experiences the fullness and the completeness of God's promises, which is, yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is loss. Yes, there are tears. And every tear will be wiped away. In God and through God, all will be well. So as people who experience suffering, the loss of health, the loss of wealth, the loss of family, and the loss of peace, know always that you are not alone. God has not forsaken you. God has not left you behind. God is with you. God is at work. God is redeeming. God is restoring. God is healing. God is still providing. And in Christ Jesus, God has assured you that sin and death do not get the last word, but instead through the life and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, all will be well for you. It is promised. All will be well for them. It is promised. In God and through God, all will be well. Let us pray. God, why cancer? God, why mental illness? God, why violence? God, why abuse? God, why bigotry? God, why sin? God, why death? In the midst of all these whys, God, Remind us that you are present, that you are at work, that what we see darkly we will one day see in fullness and in the midst. Let us rest our souls believing, trusting, and knowing in your promises made real through the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son Jesus, as together we pray the words that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>